So now we're just going to do a, a dramatic reading of this, right? A dramatic reading. <laughs> that, that's, that's one way. I, I will take the part of, of assignment lines. Assignment. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. I'm James Edward Gray II. I'll be your host today. Uh, you have no idea how hard we've struggled to bring you this episode. Uh, Chuck and hopefully was, you never will. That's right. Chuck was struck down ill, uh, which is why I'm hosting the show today. Sorry, Chuck. Get better soon. Uh, David Brady's in Los Angeles and couldn't join us. We had many audio-video difficulties today that we think we have solved at this point, and uh, there was also some computer equipment damaged during the setup for this. So uh, this is the heroic episode. Um, joining me today is Josh Susser. Hey, everybody. My computer is not broken, yay. <laughs> but his headphones may be. Uh, Avdi Grimm is also with me. Hello again. And today we thought we would talk about code reading. It's just the three of us, so it's kind of a small, intimate crowd today. Um, we thought we would talk about code reading, which is one of the uh, suggestions that we got on our site. Uh, people wanted to know how we go about code reading. Um, so we thought we would talk about it in general and then do the stupidest thing we could possibly think of and try to read code live on the show. So, uh, that's what you have to look forward to today. Um, this could be a scary episode. So, code reading in general, uh, what thoughts do we have on that? Uh, people should read code. Yeah. I'm in favor. <laughs> all, all in favor? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um... Donald Knuth, you know, one of the gods of computer science, talked about uh, you know, when he was getting on his literate coding uh, um, direction. He was talking about how practitioners in other uh, in other uh, areas often look at the product of of um, other people's work in a pleasurable way. So. You know, if you're a painter, you can look at other people's paintings. If you're an architect, you can look at buildings and appreciate them for their aesthetic value. But he didn't think that a lot of programmers read other people's code just to appreciate the aesthetics of it. Or, I guess, I guess that was his point. The, uh, and, and so he came up with this whole literate programming thing to try and make programs easier for people to read and have a pleasurable experience from it. So that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, reading code is an important educational thing. That you know, we're we're programmers. We program a lot, and the way that you get better at programming, I think, is mainly being exposed to other people's programming. Because you can't write enough programming of your own to have it uh, be useful for you to read it to learn from. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, I I think when you're a young junior programmer. I would say you need to be writing more than you're reading because at that point it's it's learning how to think like a computer and talk to a compiler, all those really stupid things we have to learn in the beginning. And um, in, in that case, I, I really feel like that you just got to write, write, write and do it wrong 50,000 times so you can figure out why you would never do it like that. 
Um, but the, as your experience grows up, in my opinion, it the it reverses, right? You should be writing less and reading more uh, as your as your experience grows, so that you can see code, you can see patterns, you can see how other people design things, and you know, for good or bad, that uh, you learn as much from bad ideas as you do from good ideas. I think so. Yeah, that's my opinion on that. What do you think, Abdi? Um, I, I think that that rings true. I, um, yeah, I, I think it makes sense to to start with more more writing uh, than reading. I mean, the the reading is definitely important, but um, it's it's really hard to to. I think it's really hard to follow something if you don't have the context. Uh, it's really and and you need to. I think you you know you need to try and and you need to write something badly before reading a really well written version of the same thing. Uh, gives you the same aha moment. And the, the, the other thing about code reading, I mean, you know, that's it's basically the way we communicate with each other, right? All our books and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's or, or when people say such and such project is great code, you know, it, it's worth going to check it out. So you can see why do people say that's great code. And generally it's because it's very expressive and easy to understand, hopefully. Usually that's the case. Sometimes it's because it's kind of insane. Like uh, if you ever go read camping, uh, it's kind of. Like that. Mm -hmm. So, 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 so I'm, I'm going to try something here. I don't know if it's going to work, but I want to make an allusion to um, a German philosopher. <laughs> so, so I'm going to talk about Wittgenstein's ladder. Uh, or, is anyone familiar with that, you guys? I'm not. The, uh, uh, so, so Wittgenstein was. Um, uh, was an important philosopher, and he he created this uh, conceptual construct called a ladder. And the point of the ladder was, uh, you have a bunch of rungs as you climb up a ladder, and you have to be standing on the nth rung to be able to reach the n plus one rung. So his ladder was a philosophical conceptual construct where you have to master a certain level of thinking before you realize that level is inadequate to describe the world correctly. And, but it's the only way that you can get to the point where you can see the next rung of the ladder. And I, and I think that, you know, James, what you're talking about, about, about junior programmers, they just have to write a lot to get the foundation where they can start, where they can have the right context to understand what's going on at that next level. I think that's, that's really important. And I, so I was just trying to make a, an allusion to Wittgenstein's ladder, which I think is, is you know, Acknowledged to be a fairly important con conceptual piece, so if you get into that sort of thing, yeah, it makes but sense. I, yeah. Oh, let, so let let's talk about let's talk about tests and code reading. Okay, that's a good point. The so I I, I think that tests are are a really great place to start when when you're looking at a new piece of code, uh, but the conundrum is always what happens when there aren't enough tests or any tests. Right. Right. Of course. So, uh, what do you guys say about that? Um, I do tend to look at the tests first. I do actually try to get them running pretty early on when I pull down a new project. I try to just get through the setup. That's usually a, a hurdle. You know, it's getting better with things like Bundler and stuff because usually you can just do the bundle and, and get pretty close. Uh, and then, you know, I, I try to get the test running. Sometimes, we seem to be bad about documenting if the tests have 
unusual dependencies, you know, if you have to have something running before the tests will go, and so I, mm -hmm. I usually run into a problem or two and have to figure figure that out, but uh, once you get the test running, then uh, it's nice because if they're passing, then you know that they're probably a pretty good representation of, of the underlying code, so as you're looking mm -hmm. at something, you can go to those particular tests and see how they how they use it. So the, so the thing that you just said that I loved was you were talking about getting the test running. And I, I think that that points to reading code as an interactive experience where you, you don't, you know, it's not the same thing. Reading the code while it's running and playing with it is a really different experience from reading it in a browser window, uh, you know, just looking through the code on the GitHub repo. Or, um, or you know, printing it out and reading it. I think poking around with it and playing with it is, uh, you know, actively reading it is a, a very powerful technique. Yeah, I always think of of Michael Feathers uh, talking about um, uh, how to. I think it was Michael Feathers talking about how to understand um, some legacy code that you've come into, and uh, and he talks about. Going into the code and reading it, and just every time you see every time you you see a, a point that you're not sure on, uh, or or you see a point that you think you know what it's doing, you put in an assertion, uh, which will fail if if your if your belief about what the code is doing is wrong, and yes. uh, and you just decorate the whole you know everything all the code you're reading with with all these assertions, and then you run the code and and you you know you validate um, your beliefs about what you just read. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that was actually in the back of my brain as I was talking about this. I, I heard, I, I, I read that when he said that. And I said, "Oh, that's that, that's nice." That, that one way I've done that, which is kind of like that, is instead of putting all those assertions directly in the code, which is actually kind of brilliant, is you write test cases. Mm -hmm. That so you know, <clears throat> even if there aren't tests, you can start writing your own tests and put your assertions in there. Right. The issue I have um, with with going in like reading the test first with a lot of code bases is um, sometimes you don't get get a very good perspective from that because sometimes you'll find uh, code bases where a sort of a trivial case was tested to death, and then the 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 and then some of the code that's really the most central code in the system and the hairiest code in the system is really not tested at all. Maybe it was hard to test. Maybe it was written. Uh, in a hurry or something like that, mm -hmm. um, and and so you you can sometimes get a skewed perspective uh, because you see like all these you know you read all these tests for a piece of functionality that actually isn't that interesting. Right. Yeah. And and a lot of times the core functionality thing that uh, you may not bother testing because you think oh it'll just get hit and tested uh, you know as a side effect of, or a second order effect of testing some piece of code that uses it. Right. Yeah. So. Well, that, I mean, yeah, that's fair. So, but I, but I, but I think that the, using tests as an active way of reading, and you know, being able to modify tests or insert assertions right in the code itself, is a pretty powerful technique. I think IRB or PRI is also another nice way. Right, especially for libraries. I right. like that very much. I have a question for James. Go for so, it. so you. Um, you you basically wrote a book about code reading. I did. Um, uh, so so Ruby the, the the Ruby quiz book. Right. Um, you know is 
is a book where you you know you, you set these challenges and then you read a great deal of code uh, and then you know and, and then you you know you distilled it and and presented it and I'm curious uh, what you can tell what you can tell us about just the process of doing that so uh, that's actually a neat question because that uh, a lot of people think I ran the Ruby quiz for the community, uh, and that's not true at all. I don't care about you guys. I did it for me. Um, so uh, the running the Ruby quiz was a way to improve my skills in a dramatic way, and that every single week I would read, you know, all the submissions and, and write about them, so I had to play with them and uh, stuff like that. And I, I did learn a lot of things. The reading of the code in the Ruby quiz was very complicated because uh, I, you know, we would get everything in and I, I only had a little bit of time to write it up as things were coming in. So I would try to get them working uh, right off the bat, like we were talking about earlier. If they had tests, I would play with those tests. If I ran into much trouble getting them working, I generally set them aside um, because there there just wasn't much time for me to debug a lot of that and and still have time to write up the summary and stuff. Um, but I actually think that's kind of a useful tip for dealing with libraries anyway. If I'm if I'm trying to figure it out and it's a pain in the butt and I can't, you know, even get it running or, or it's too much trouble, then I probably don't want to be using this library anyway because if I have to go to contribute to it at some point or anything like that, then uh, that's going to be difficult. So uh, I try not to do that if it's if it's difficult then once i have it working um i generally tried to throw different inputs at it and see what would happen you know what happens when i do this what happens when i do that so a lot about what josh was talking about about actively reading it um and then i would i would try to work through the code you know as much as possible to figure out the path of execution that it was taken and what were its core data structures oh this one's using a stack to manipulate the data as it runs through or things like that so i i learned a lot that that was probably how i learned to read code was doing the ruby quiz cool oh i have a reference um i don't know if there's a video for it upline uh, online and i don't remember exactly what year it, it was but there was a rails conf i think it was one of the portland rails confs where Adam Keyes gave a talk on code reading. Oh. It, may have, it may have been a RubyConf, I'm not sure. They all kind of blur together after a while. <laughs> but but it, was a, it was a pretty good talk on code reading. And, uh, and a lot of it was actually uh, advice on how not to write unreadable code. So. <laughs> That's cool. Is the video online? I, I don't know. I can, I, can, uh, I can take a peek and see if I can find it. And if so, we can put it in the show notes. Cool. I have kind of a similar note. Um, I I don't I, again. I'm not sure. I think it was I think it was a, maybe a talk he did. Uh, Dave Thomas did a, a talk or an interview or something where he was talking about code reading, and I remember the one point that stuck with me uh, was that when he's first jumping into a code base, he'll take the entire code base and he'll zoom like basically put it all on a page. Oh yeah, the um, zoom from ten thousand feet and yeah. and zoom the whole thing out. Yeah. Uh, so you know you can't really read any of it, but you can kind of see the shape of the code, and, and I actually think that's a, a powerful way of approaching it. Yeah, it's surprising what you can tell like that. Like, there's usually, you know, this one module that just has a bunch of t-tiny methods, or usually utilities or something, and then 
there's usually one section where there's this one monster method, you know, or at least, you know, a big chunk of code all kind of grouped together, and you can tell that's, like, the beating heart of the thing, you know. I, I wonder if there's um, a clever way to use Git to look at the metrics of, you know, which file has the most changes. That's a good question. I don't know. It's a good question. Churn. Yeah. Churn. There's a tool for churn. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, that, that would be something I think that could be helpful. That was one of the interesting problems that we were tackling when we were doing Caliper at Dever was, was, um, was, it was, it was, it's easy enough to track, um, like ongoing, uh, churn for a project once you're kind of hooked into it. But we were like trying to go back into the history and, and, and get like a sampling of churn over time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, without, without running thousands of commits through, uh, through through it for the really big pro projects, so that was kind of an interesting problem. I love having um, uh, Git though when I am reading code because I can do things like make changes, screw with things, and then just you know throw it all away so easily. You know. Okay, so so uh, so let's get down to reading. Let's 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 try our skills out. So so uh, for those of you following along at home. Uh, the project that we're going to uh, do our dramatic reading of is rubygems.org. <laughs> so it's, uh, this is up on the GitHubs. And, we'll put uh, a link in the show notes. And, yeah. And we did cheat by taking the, you know, 20 minutes or so it took for three of us to pull it down. We did that <laughs> off camera. Right. So, uh, yeah, so this is the rubygems slash rubygems.org repo on GitHub. Formerly and, known and, as Gemco. Yes, yeah. So, so this is the uh, the the Rails application that is uh, behind RubyGems.org. So when you when you go look at all those fabulous gems there, uh, this is what's running. And and I think uh, Avdi and I both have made small contributions to this code base. James has absolutely no very small going on. Okay, so uh, okay, the first so, thing I think all of us did. We cloned it locally, right? All of us? Mm -hmm. So yes. that we could see it in our own editors, right? That's uh, something I can't, I mean, you know, I can look at little things on GitHub or something like that, but I can't really read code. Like, I, I need to read code unless I have it in my normal environment with my normal syntax highlighting and my keyboard shortcuts to go where I want to go or things like that, so... I think we all made local copies of it. So, uh, mm -hmm. Avdi and Josh, when you worked on the site, what did you work on? Avdi? I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I do. <laughs> so so if, if you go look at a, a page for a particular gem, uh, there's a, a little box that says, uh, that has a piece of code that you, or a command that you type to install the gem. And uh, I added the bit that um, gave you the line that you can put into your gem file that, that has the tilde greater than the version number on it because I wanted to encourage people to use that, uh, that um, you know, use the, uh, I think it's the what, conservative operator. I forgot what they call that thing in Ruby gems. The, <laughs> uh, the twiddle yeah, okay, yes. that thing. <laughs> right. So I was encouraging people not to put greater than in their gem file. Right. So that was the whole point of that. I wanted to give them good behavior to model. Gotcha. So cool. having never seen the project before now, I've been over here 
cheating a little bit as we've been talking. I've been kind of just browsing through it. I'll note that the first thing I did was just open the app folder and just kind of scan down there because that gives you a good idea. You know, you, you're always going to see the, in a Rails app, you know, the model view and controller directories and such. But uh, I did see some interesting things in there. Like I saw the assets directory, which made me think, oh, it's probably a Rails 3.1 app. Uh, but I, I don't think that's true. I think it's actually Rails 3.0, I now know, from a different source. But uh, and then I did see a jobs directory in there, which I assumed would be background jobs. And that got me kind of curious about, you know, what they were using for that. Instead of actually looking in there to figure that out, though, I opened the gem file and just kind of browsed through the gem file. It's amazing what you can learn just looking through the gem file, for example... Uh, that's where I saw the three, uh, Rails 3.0.10, so I assume it's a, a Rails 3.0 app. Um, I saw some gems in here about Postgres, so I'm assuming this is a Postgres app. Uh, I saw Redis in here, uh, so I'm, I'm betting it uses Redis for some things. Uh, and then I saw a delayed job, so that I'm assuming is the background system. Uh, and of course you can see what testing tools it's using, Capybara, Cucumber Rails, Factory Girl, things like that. Uh, and then I also saw Sinatra in the gem file, which I just found that kind of interesting. I wonder how that's being used. Hmm. Those were some of the first steps I took looking at the code. So I just ran um, C tags over the, uh, the app and lib directories to compile a, a cross-reference of classes and methods, which I can, which will hopefully help me navigate around a little better. If I see a reference to a class, I can nav navigate to its, to its definition. Interesting. That's, That's a good trick. Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I usually just rely on, on uh, you know, code searching for regular expressions if need, if need be, or just searching for class names or method names. Yeah, well, I use I use a lot of ACK as well, um, but mm -hmm. uh, but but C tags can be handy. And actually, um, I um, so I, I primarily use uh, uh, Emacs for writing code. But sometimes when I'm getting into a new code base, I'll feed it into into RubyMind because uh, one mm -hmm. of the things that RubyMind is really good at is is cross referencing a code base, um, and you can ask it things like you know where where what are all the places where this method is defined. Um, it's it's got a pretty decent static analysis engine. It, it, yeah, it, yeah. I, I've been using RubyMine more lately, and I've actually been appreciating that part of it. I think that's you know I'm a big fan of IDEs. I just don't think that there's a, a really great Ruby IDE yet. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I think when you're navigating a new code base, you you really have to use every tool you can find uh, to help you you know find your way around better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just the amount of code that's involved, you know, can be pretty daunting. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how big Gem Cutter is. I wonder if I can figure that out. I just ran Rake Stats. Oh, good. <laughs> which is, uh, I think, a, a, a reasonable place to start when you're looking at a new code base. Right. And uh, so uh, there's about 500 or so lines of controller code 150 lines of helper code, 930 lines of model code, 80 lines of library code. Hmm. So it so this is a reasonably skinny controller fat model. It looks like. Yeah, so. that's actually interesting. I would have expected more code. So. 
Well, the rake stats isn't um, isn't super awesome about finding code everywhere in your project. Uh, it just knows the standard places to look. Right. So if they if they have a, a an atypical, uh, you know, you know, there's a lot of uh, like mailers and middleware and jobs in here that code might be hiding in that rake stats doesn't know about. So, but the the general uh, general case is uh, mostly model code. Okay, I glanced through the routes file real quick, um, and the interesting thing about this routes file is it's uh, uh, divided. It's got comments kind of uh, showing the different sections, uh, which I was grateful for because it, it kind of showed me that the app is divided into two main chunks. Uh, basically, the API, which I assume is what uh, you know the RubyGems client uses to talk to the application, and mm -hmm. then the uh, UI chunk. Uh, with a couple other minor chunks, but uh, those look like the two main chunks. So the UI, I assume, is like the gem pages that Josh was discussing earlier. Yeah, and I think that the way downloads happen is that there's a Sinatra app. I just want to say this is a nice use of comments here because the, the, the way that it was so quickly obvious that, that UI and, and API, API were two separate sections of the routes file is that somebody uh, very nicely put in some big headers over those sections saying API and UI. Right. Uh, although, even without the comments, there's that namespace API block that starts everything right. off, and I think that makes it fairly obvious that you're dealing with, in, with the API there. There is no scoping on the rest of it, so it's nice that there's that UI comment there. Yeah. So, GemCutter is kind of a, you know, dual-headed Hydra in that, you know, it has to communicate with humans who are searching it or looking at uh, gems and things like that, and then it has to um, uh, communicate with, obviously, the Ruby Gems command line program that does things like installing gems and stuff. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and, and the, the UI routes uh, seem to be pretty straightforward. Yes. And you can get an idea of what the resources are pretty quickly. You know, they're searching uh, profiles, stats, and then gems. So I went searching for what is the Sinatra portion of the app, um, and I found it in, um, it's in uh, app middleware uh, hostess, and there's a class hostess that inherits from Sinatra base. Yes. So, I'm sorry, what did you say that was for, Josh? Um, I believe that's the thing that serves up the gems to the um, to the gem command. Interesting. Serve via S3. Yeah, that's kind of what it's looking like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's you know like line sixty three there. Please upgrade your Ruby gems. It's quite old. Yeah, that's what I just saw too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, you know there's clearly uh you know feedback here going on to the to the command line. So this is um, this is probably run as a middleware to bypass a large portion of the Rails stack and allow you know more efficient running of these API calls that don't need a lot of Rails niceties. Mm -hmm. hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I th I, I, I have not yet uh, built an application that used Sinatra that way, but um, it. It's uh, supposedly a pretty, pretty nice way to make uh, simple requests much more efficient. Yeah, I've worked on I've worked on applications that use it that way, and 
um, one of the things I like about it is I do kind of just like having the separate apps, you know, the server for the Sinatra handling the API and then the main Rails app doing the main UI, just because you can uh, break those or rotate those out independently. You know, if you need to update the API, then just take that one down and bring it back up, or whereas mm -hmm. uh, hmm. leave the UI. Yo, oh, with the, although with this, uh, you know, hostess running as middleware, you would have to... That's you would have to redo the whole application for that's true. Case. It looks like you would, yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, so the the place that I like to go to after looking at the routes file is the schema. Schema, very nice. Yeah, schema RB. And and that um, I think is a that's a good uh, place to zoom everything out. And and look at it from ten thousand feet because it gives you a pretty good idea of how big things are and. How how big your tables are, and and I'll, I'll I notice that if there's a really big table somewhere, then that's often like a god object. There's there's that word again, Avi. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that offline. Um, the uh, yeah, but it can show you a place where there is an object that has too much responsibility, or maybe just an object that has a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. So looking at this schema, the uh, interesting things I see, obviously, the user table is one of the bigger tables that doesn't surprise me at all. It almost always is. Um, mm -hmm. But then uh, the table di directly below that in the schema is the versions table. And that mm -hmm. looks like it's a pretty important piece of this architecture. It's got quite a few fields. Um, and uh, you can notice that there's some heavy indexing on it uh, right below the schema. There's several different indexes of various types, so I assume it sees a lot of traffic. Hmm. Well, yeah, and, and that makes sense. I mean, given that, uh, you know, if you look at the RubyGems table, it's actually quite small. All it has is a name and a number of downloads <laughs> and a slug, basically. Right. Yeah, and uh, so I think that most of the work that's going on is related to the particular version of a RubyGem or a release. Right. So the, and then there's a few things in there like dependencies and delayed jobs. Those look kind of interesting. So that you know, it's it's nice. This schema is you know only about 150 lines long. It's not one of those you know monstrous 3,000 line schemas. Yeah, there's not really any table in there that's you know ridiculously huge or anything like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, the the one that looks a little interesting is link sets. Yeah, I wonder what that is. It's the links out of a gem specification that, because mm -hmm. looking at the fields, you've got the wiki, the docs, the hootie mm -hmm. email. Yeah, yeah, it's the links out of a, a gem specification. Yeah, it's probably just a has one off of the, off of the gem, and I bet we can find that pretty easily. So I'm just going to rubygem.rb, and in fact, there's a has one link set. Okay, so. So gems so, have. I'm guessing they have many versions, just looking at the schema, and yes, it looks like mm -hmm. that's confirmed. So. Yeah, so, 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 now, so now that we've looked at the schema, uh, where I usually go next is I look at the models and their associations. Right. So get, a, get a feel for how everything hook, hooks together. Yeah, that's a great lay of the land technique, right? Seeing how mm -hmm. things hook together. Yeah, so looking in the app models directory, uh, you know, there's, what, about a dozen or 15 or so models there. Yeah, it's not not ridiculous. 
No, not ridiculous at all. So, you know, for, for being a pretty sophisticated application, it's nice that this is uh, not too huge. So, uh, the, you know, I, I looked at this code first, I think, about two years ago, and it's definitely improved a lot since then. So, kudos, guys. Although, although a low number of classes is not always an indicator of, of not much code. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you say more about that, Avdi? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean... If you, uh, if you, sometimes you come into a, a, a big project that doesn't have very many classes and, and, and you go, oh no, because you know you're going to find a class in there that's like 2,000 lines long. It looks like it holds pretty well in this case, though, just in that I've looked in the main objects like Ruby Gems and, uh, Ruby Gem and Version, which I think are two of the primary models. Both of those just, you know, 250 yeah. lines or so, not real. So, 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 I, so I did a, um, oh, WC app model star to Ooh, look good see, one. Yeah, look and see which ones were the were the big uh, files. And uh, Ruby gem is two hundred and fifty lines. Version is two hundred and seventy four lines. Downloads one hundred and fifty. Dependencies one hundred. So they're you know they're not too terrible. There's a couple really small ones that are on the order of you know twenty lines. So that's awesome. That was a great trick for just getting the general size of things too. Yeah, yeah, I do that every now and then. It's, uh, I, I, I kind of wish that my IDE, or I had an IDE that, that showed me that sort of size inf as I'm scanning over things, but it's not too hard to do it yourself there. Or it could, it could draw the uh, you know, icons larger and larger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, by the way, if you pipe um, WC to sort-n, it'll sort everything by size. So I, I remember, James, uh, recently you were talking about in your picks the Unix command line. So we're now using the Unix command line for code reading. Look at Josh showing off his skills. <laughs> I just take my inspiration from you, man. <laughs> so, yeah, it, just doing that WC trick, it also gives you the total, which is kind of neat. So only, you know, mm -hmm. 11, 1154 total in the app, uh, models directory. Yeah. Which so. is nice. So I, I kind of am curious about how the controllers are laid out here. So I'm going to go poke around, and I see an API subdirectory, so that's good. So I'm assuming the main interface controllers are everything out of that API subdirectory, and then in that API subdirectory is where I would go to find the specific <laughs> actions that interact with uh, the RubyGems API. Mm -hmm. And uh, do, doing my uh, WC trick on that, the um, let's see here. Bam! Oh, you got to look in the V1 subdirectory. Right, there is a V1. Okay, so that that's not too bad. It's only about two hundred and fifty lines of code for the V1 controller set, at, at, which is comparable to the UI. So the UI has about two has about two hundred and sixty lines total. So. Yeah, I've been looking through the controllers a little bit. They are very much, you know, skinny controllers that just delegate to underlying methods uh, for the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you yeah, none of these are too terrible. So I'm kind of curious, how does Redis get used in the system? Do you guys know? Where are you seeing Redis? I saw it in the gem file. Oh, it, well, let's see, it's use, is it using rescue? No, it's using delayed no, job. No, it's delayed job. It's in K 
config initializers, we can see some Redis. I just uh, did a, a global find in the project for the word Redis. And the connections get set up in um, a config initializer. And then, let's see here, a couple of migrations about it. Uh, but that's actually all I'm seeing right now. There's a lot of stuff about Redis in uh, in the download model. Ah, the download counts, right? Hmm. That would, okay. That would be my guess, just from its location. Let's take a look. Yeah. Yeah, it's doing a lot of uh, increment yeah, stuff. Yeah. Count key, Ruby gem, version key. I bet it's counting the downloads. So I just this is has nothing specifically to do with Redis, but I just reminded myself um, of of a code reading trick that I, I use without really thinking about it, um, which is git blame. Yeah. Um, and 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 it's so um, especially in in um, connection with a good editor. So uh, like like my editor, if I if I do the 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 in editor git blame command, uh, it gives me um, basically two columns. Uh, on the left side uh, are the commits and and who committed them, and on the right side is the code that's been colorized according to commits. So basically, it 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 came it got a list of all the commits relevant to this particular version of the file, and it assigned a color to each commit. Um, and and that's really useful because um, now I have this view now of, of a file that kind of that shows me the like the related changes, like which which methods were written at the same time. Um, you know, and as part of the same functionality, and which parts of the methods were then like added later, um, and uh, and you know, and and the other nice thing is that it gives me you know somebody's name next to it. So if I want to ask somebody about uh, you know what's this all about, I actually have a good idea now who to go ask. But what I really like about this is just the color coding where I I can see um, related changes, and it, it you know instead of like that flat view of this is just everything. Um, and you're, it's not as clear like what's related. Um, I have a, an idea now of, of which things are part of a particular feature. And another great thing about that is if you're interested in a particular part of it, you can just take that shot and feed it to get show and then right. you know get that whole group together. <laughs> right. So, so Avdi, what tool are you using to see the colorizing there? Uh, this is just the way Emacs handles. Um, I think it's the standard Emacs uh, okay. Git handling. Um, or VC, it, you know, it handles most uh, version controllers the same way. And yeah, that's like like James is saying. I can I can hit a key either to see um, I can hit a key to see that commit uh, and the message associated with it, and then I can hit another key to see the entire diff of that commit. So that can be really that's a, a really handy technique. So you you know if you're curious about a particular method, first you do a git blame. You see that it was part of a particular change. You go to that change. Then you then you go to the the diff the entire diff for the change. You see see um, everything that went on with that particular change, and you get an idea of okay, this was a, this was a unit of functionality that was added, and this is how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that by default when I do get blame, I don't see the color coding. There must be a setting for that that I don't have set. I have get color turned on for my diffs and stuff, but I don't see it in the blame. I need to look at that. Is that on the command line? Yeah, yeah, I was doing it. Yeah, on the command line. yeah. I I don't know if we'll if Git will do that. Um, this is just something that that Emacs layers on top of it. Interesting. And I assume other editors do as well. So, have you all um, set things up to be able to run? 
the tests or anything? Uh, I think I'm close. Let's see. I did bundle it. My bundle barfs. I think I, I'm missing a library. Hmm. Oh, you got to set up database YAML, by the way. Right. Uh, okay, right. And yay, it's using Postgres. I know. Hooray! Do you have the test running, Josh? Yeah, I don't know if I can resolve my... Uh... Oh, I'm, i got to set up my database uh, YAML. Okay, I'm running tests. Cool. Very nice. And they're all passing. Nice. <laughs> I may or may not be able to. On on this, I, um, I'm, I'm sorting out the, the bundle failure. Oh. What happened to your bundle? Uh, I was just missing some, some Postgres development mm. headers. Oh. Got to install the right package. Hmm. Yeah, I I, uh, I learned a new thing about uh, Postgres on Lion, and that's that uh, Lion comes with Postgres. Oh, really? Yes. However, it's not the version of Postgres you want to use. So if you if you do a brew install Postgres, which is what we did, um, it it works great. But if you've already bundled your Rails application, it will have the PG gem will have built itself using the Apple-supplied ah, Postgres headers. Right. So you right. have, all, you have to, all you have to do is delete that gem and rebundle it, and then it's fine. <laughs> oh, connection refused. you got to have Redis running. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? To run the test. Otherwise... Uh, I, I guess. I mean, my, I must have been set up for that already because uh, I only had one failure, and that was in one of the Cucumber features. And that was for visitor signs out. Do they so. give a config for Redis by chance? I don't know. You know, so I I obviously have been have cheated here because uh, my machine is still set up from having done work on on Gemcutter or or the RubyGems.org a few months ago. So um, I, I've already gone through the work to make all this uh, run before. There it goes. I got it. I ran. Oh, cool. Ran the tests, and they all passed. Three hundred and thirty-four tests, six hundred and sixty-seven assertions in the models. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you just run rake, I got um, I got a bunch of stuff from Cucumber spewing out yes, there. Yes, it's doing it. It's doing it. I'm working through the controllers now. So yeah. So yeah, getting the test and that uh, Redis gotcha is what I meant to mention earlier when I was saying I always seem to run into some dependency that's not quite well explained, you know, and that's, yeah, there again. Mm -hmm. Until I had Redis going, it wouldn't do anything. It looks like it has a fairly extensive test suite. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. So the page you worked on, Josh, was the page that shows an individual Ruby gem. I'm assuming that's the Ruby Gems controller, perhaps. Uh, that sounds familiar. And show. And that would, be, yeah, that'd be in the show action. Right. Yeah. Oddly enough, the contribution that I made, or the 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 uh, patch that I submitted, I guess, uh, was um, far enough out uh, in their uh, coding styles that. Uh, uh, the powers that be decided it was easier for them to rewrite my contribution, so I don't think my name actually shows up in the commit history anywhere. Ouch. Yeah, I was very sad at that. But, um, I I, uh, I finally figured out what I did. I worked on um, webhooks. 
Oh, yeah, webhooks, that unknown feature in Ruby Gems. <laughs> <laughs> what does the webhooks do, Ufti? Um, it was, it, it was uh, to enable Ruby Gems to ping another site um, when a new gem was pushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was when I was working at Dever. Uh, we wanted to be able to say to note that somebody had somebody who was plugged into Caliber had pushed a new gem, and then we would we would pull down the gem and run um, run metrics on it. Okay. Hey, I just found I just found the uh, the code that was inspired by my contribution. <laughs> so if you if you go to the show view for um, right. For the Ruby Gems controller, mm -hmm. uh, line starts at line seventy-four. So my rake is complaining that I don't have a new relic .yml. Yeah, you can ignore that. Well, it won't. Oh, I see. Never mind. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't actually make any difference. Oh, I see. Okay, so so uh, when you're reading code, I think that you can be reading code for a couple reasons. One is just to you know, look at a code base and learn from it or have some aesthetic appreciation of it. And then there's also reading code because you have some objective, like, oh, I want to add this feature. Right. And, and I think that you end up reading the code in different ways when you have a, when you have a particular objective or goal in mind. Right. I think fundamentally you usually learn more when, it, when you're actually doing it in service of, of, of a particular feature. I agree. No, well, I, well, I think you can learn more. Uh, de you can definitely learn more in a more focused way. But I, you know, when I when I made this change, I was very focused on making this change, and I didn't learn a lot about things like Redis or Sinatra. So, you know, I was very focused on that. That's right. What, that's what's kind of nice about an app like this that's divided out pretty well. It's basically two different pieces, you know, and you can. You can go into the API side and probably ignore most of the UI side, you know, or go into the UI side and ignore most of the API side. Yeah, I, I ignored it completely. It was great. <laughs> so have, have we learned anything? Yeah, what, <laughs> have anything? We, what have we learned from spelunking in Ruby Gems? Let's go around the horn on that one. I've learned that the application was not as complex as I expected it to be. Just... Uh, Poking around in it, I've been real pleased, and I think it's a testament to, you know, the value of well-written code. It's The methods aren't that huge. I was able to poke around and get a fairly decent understanding of what things were pretty much right off the bat. Um, you know, the division of it seems to make sense to me. I was able to understand where things are, hunt for certain things when I wanted to, so uh, I was impressed with that. Major open source projects are always so much, um, always seem so much cleaner than uh, the kind of you know be, the the proprietary systems that I usually work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth? Well, well, when you have to let other people look at your code, I think you um, you care about how it looks more. Want to make sure it is a good haircut. Yeah. Avdi, are you saying your code is sometimes messy? <laughs> I'm sure that's not what you're no. saying. No. So, so, so one, th one thing we didn't do is we didn't look at the tests at all, even after all of our, like, blah, 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 look at the tests. I have actually <laughs> been thumbing through them a little bit. It looks like they use, um, is that Shoulda that has? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all test unit and Shoulda. You know, this is a pretty standard uh, 
rail stuff. They don't have any fixtures. No, they use they use uh, factories, factory girl. They use factory girl. Okay. Uh, well, I thought, yeah, yeah, they do. Yes. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's factories right there. Yeah, so. most of them are in application.rb is where you find mm -hmm. most of the factories. Yeah, but that, even that's not bad. It's only about eighty lines. Yeah. So. Really clean. Okay. Well, I, you know, we're kind of out of time, but I, it might be interesting to spend a little more time looking at the tests and seeing what they're doing. Something else that I remember that I always do when I'm I'm trying to figure out a code base is if it is a Rails app and if I am um, if I'm trying to figure out um, a particular feature so I can add to it, um, I'll I'll tail the log um, in some window and um, and then I'll just step through the feature uh, manually in the browser and just look in the log at what's touched. You know, look at what uh, what controllers are being hit? So I'm, you know, so I know like where to start, and I'll look at what tables are being hit, um, and and a lot of times there are surprises in there. You know, you, maybe you know there's there's a model that you're you're sure is involved because of its name, and then you look in the log and you realize that model is actually I don't know deprecated or something, and and, and it's actually something else that's being used. And, and there is actually that in this code right here. I was. Um... As I was looking around, uh, there was apparently an older version of the API, and that's mm. kind of sectioned off now in a deprecated uh, controller. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, 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 hey, do either of you guys ever use a tool like Flog to to do some code analysis? To you know, we were talking earlier about you know just simple tricks to see where the where the big code is and where the complex code is. Do you ever use something like Flog? I haven't used that. I've seen it used, but I, I've never done it myself. Yeah, I've, I've never gotten to the point where I where it seemed like it would be worth uh, worth spending the the time figuring out how to make it work. Right. Yeah, it probably isn't all that much, but right. It's probably easier if you're in charge of the project. I usually find myself coming into big projects that are you know that don't have the time to to you know figure out how to make that work. Uh, to how to make metrics tools and stuff like that work on on you know on their code, but there's always something that comes up that's like you know some file that it pukes on or something like that. Right. Uh, well, when we do the episode on metrics, maybe we should. Uh, I'll maybe at least I'll take a little time to figure out how to use flog right. The um, you know, this app uh, was pretty easy to get up and running, uh, mainly because of Bundler, which installed all the needed dependencies and then. Um, uh, things like that. But one other thing this app did that I love is as soon as I seeded into the directory, there was a .rbmrc file, so I just switched me to the proper version of Ruby, you know, to, mm -hmm. to run it. And I, I really love having that file uh, just because, you know, even if you don't use RBM, at least you could open that file and look and see what version of Ruby it's expected. You know? uh, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's become really valuable for, for open source projects because there are so many versions of Ruby floating around now. Right. Uh, I, I, it's interesting. This one runs on uh, one nine three. Yeah, it's current. Yeah, it looks uh, like they're pretty close to moving it to three one. There's the asset directory, and I see the JavaScript in there or something. I don't know. It looks like maybe mm -hmm. that process has been started, but not finished. Yeah, well, it, it's it. It looks like it's uh, it has the typical boilerplate files for doing sprockets, right. but they haven't been modified at all. Oh, you know the place that used to be. Really key to look 
that nobody looks at anymore, and that's the vendor plugins directory. You're right, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, you, you look at it now, and there's two tiny things in there. There's Dynamic Form and Heroku Asset Cacher. Right. It, it, so I think the gem file has totally taken the place of looking in vendor plugins. So that's, yeah. crazy. that's interesting. Does Ruby Gems run on Heroku? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, you know where we didn't look at all. What's that? And that was the that was the application README. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a good point. Oh, actually, it has a it has a fairly nice uh, broken down how to contribute. Yeah. So 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 uh, one little trick that I'll offer to TextMate users is that if you open the README.textile file and then you hit uh, Command Option Control P. It will preview the textile and render it for you, That's so right. it's a lot easier to read. Or you could just read it on GitHub. Yeah, which automatically does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Command Option Control P, and people and people mock me for ah, using ah, Emacs. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Way to pick That's the right. worst shortcut in the book. That's great. Well, TextMate is is almost Emacs in terms it, of it. It is almost <laughs> Emacs. Yeah, yeah. it is. Very it's certainly mockable. <laughs> That's awesome. So that, okay, so that is funny that us developers just like totally sidestep the README, you know. <laughs> well, I think I think maybe that's um, that's a cautionary tale. I think that a, a lot of readmes are kind of useless. Right. That, you know, Rails generates a README that is Not, the first thing you do when you generate a Rails project is delete the destroy README. Destroy the README, right? Yeah, and the uh, and uh, public slash index. index. Yeah, HTML. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Why do they even generate that anymore? Stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, so uh, any other last words? I guess I have. I haven't said anything about what we learned. I think. I, I think that. I I feel a lot less intimidated by this code base than I was when I was trying to work on it before. That's right. Now Josh intimidates code bases. It goes the other way. <laughs> you know, look out, I'm rolling up my sleeves. <laughs> All right. Well, we better get into the picks. So okay. it's time to do some picks. Uh, this week we will start with, I don't know, Josh. We'll do that. Okay. Um, I had a really busy week, so I didn't really, uh, I don't have, uh, have much to say for picks this week, except I have, I have a good um, shopping pick, since we're coming to the shopping season. And uh, I recently had to, had to buy a Mac, and I used the, I don't know if people are aware, but Apple Store just started doing uh, Boppis, or Buy Online Pickup in Store. And, and it was awesome, because I went and uh, bought something at Best Buy last week, and I did buy online pickup in store, and it was like the worst shopping experience ever. Of course, it was Best Buy, so what do you expect? Uh, and then the next day, I went and did it at the Apple. I I was looking online at the Apple Store to buy an iMac, and oh hey, they have this pickup in store feature. So I did it, and I, you know, walked two blocks to the Apple Store, walked in, said hey, I'm picking up my my iMac, and I gave them my name, and they came out and had my system already, and I walked out of the store with it. Well, <laughs> it was, like, nice. incredibly easy. So I, this, is, this is apparently a brand-new thing for the Apple Store, and if you if you got to go buy something at the Apple Store, just do it. It doesn't cost anything, and you don't have to wait around while they put your system together. Nice. So you can still do build-to-order 
configurations and stuff? No, it, you only get to do the stuff that's that's uh, right there in the store. Gotcha. The, although I guess if you had to, I don't know, may, maybe you can. Maybe you can do custom configurations and they'll ship it to the store and you pick it up there. Hmm. I haven't investigated that, but the... You know, if you if you have a, a standard configuration, it's definitely simple. I, you know, it took them about ten minutes to get it ready for me to walk over and pick up. Cool. So that that's it for me this week. Avdi, what do you got? Um, so um, you know, we we at uh, Ruby Midwest, uh, we talked to Dave Copeland, uh, about his book Build Awesome Command Line Applications in Ruby. Uh, so we've already kind of hawked that a bit, but uh, I have I have finished reading it, or at least I finished reading the beta, and uh, and I recommend it. It's uh, it's a good book on a good topic. Uh, so if you want to, you know, build uh, build command line apl- applications which have nice fr- user friendly UIs, um, definitely recommended. Yeah, I want I want to check that out. Maybe maybe we can do a book club on that at some point. But the, but he Dave Copeland spoke at Gogoruko earlier this year, and he did a talk on test driving command line applications in Ruby, and the mm-hmm. video of that is up online. So I can put that in the show notes too. So he's a good speaker, and it was a good talk. Yeah. And also, um, so uh, a few weeks ago, I, I picked up a um, a Galaxy Tab ten point one, um, which is the uh, the tablet that. That that Apple I think is is suing Samsung over because it really does uh, look like a widescreen iPad, um, and uh, I got it so that I could read technical all my technical eBooks and so that I could do video conferencing on on uh, on a separate device in like uh, Google Plus and Skype and all that stuff and it works for both of those tasks perfectly. Um, I've been very happy with it. So good device. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, like Josh, I had uh, kind of a busy week and haven't haven't looked into too much, but I do want to plug um, Alfred. Uh, that's what I use for like mm. application launching and stuff like that on the Mac. Um, it's a uh, uh, it's just an app launcher. I was really hooked on Quicksilver back in the day, um, and it was very sad when it kind of slowly fell into disrepair. I believe it's actually been resurrected and is around now, but uh, I, I left uh, Quicksilver during that time period when it was uh, not behaving well. And I tried LaunchBar for a while, and I, I never really could enjoy LaunchBar uh, after coming from Quicksilver. Uh, and then I finally moved to Alfred, and I have to say it was it was okay when I got there, but it's been getting better and better, and it just hit 1.0 yesterday. Um, and... Uh, I've been playing around with some of the new features, and uh, it's it's almost back to Quicksilver great for me. And it does have some fel- uh, features uh, that I didn't even use in Quicksilver. So uh, I do recommend checking out Alfred and spend a little time fiddling around with it. You might be surprised um, what's under the hood. It, I, I recommend picking up the Power Pack um, and then and then digging into the features a little. Uh, some that I use all the time, in addition to just application launching, I, I use a calculator all the time. Uh, I use a dictionary to look up words, and it'll spell correct for you as it goes, which is just awesome. Um, and uh, I use um, now uh, in 1.0, the new thing is like global hotkeys. So now I just have a key that opens my terminal or my browser or my editor and uh, one that pauses and plays iTunes for me, you know, uh, those kinds yeah. of things. It's it's really uh, 
and you can hook into Apple scripts with it. So I have a, I have one in the morning when I come in, I just trigger an Apple script and it opens the apps that I like to have open when I'm working, you know, and, and things like that. So uh, it's really, it, it's pretty well-rounded. It's not hard to figure out. And uh, for me, it's, it's pretty vital to using a Mac. I don't use the dock at all. I just hide it. Yeah, so, so I've been liking Alfred a lot too. I've been using that for like a year. I, I made the same path from, that you did from Quicksilver to LaunchBar to Alfred. LaunchBar was great, except that it always had like a one-second pause when it was paging. Right, yeah. That, that's, that drove me nuts. Alfred's much snappier. The, the thing, so I want to ask you about, I, I remapped my command space from the Spotlight menu to Alfred. Do you do the same thing? Yep, same thing. Command space for me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I um so anyways Alfred is definitely worth a look and I recommend people check it out if you like application launchers. It makes using your Mac much more convenient. One of the cool new features, I'll mention one more, there's a new uh you can set up a keystroke to open your browser and open like a whole bunch of tabs at once. So like if you have a you know those five web pages you like to read every morning or something, you can set that up and then just make one keystroke and it'll fire up your browser and open all five of those tabs and you can just leap through them. So it's pretty neat. It's got uh, kind of a, it's pretty robust in its feature set. It's worth looking into. All right. I think that's everything. We've got pigs. We've uh, read code live on the air. Uh, we've injured equipment. Uh, that ought to be enough for, for one show. Um, don't forget, next week we are doing uh, the Eloquent Ruby episode. Uh, it's a good book. I finished it over the Thanksgiving holiday. I was sick, so I just uh, kind of curled up and read it all weekend. So uh, it's a good book. Uh, there's lots of good stuff in it, and we'll have plenty to talk about. So read along and follow up with us then, and we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.